0: chapter, near the end of chapter 40, sorry, beginning of 48, and we'll start in verse 1. One of the difficulties in preaching every week is that we have all these hours between the last time we were together. You will remember that Jacob has come down to Egypt He's 130 years old, he lives 17 more years, and we're at the end of his life. So if you do the math, he's just shy of 150. So here we begin in verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son, Joseph, has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me in Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and will make of you a great company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you as an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me when I came from Padan. To my sorrow, Rachel, your mother, died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, in Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, These, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And his father said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand. And Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand. And he brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger. And his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. The God who's been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on. Let the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Somebody has said, You know, when you're getting old, You've got all the answers, but nobody's asking the questions. (laughs) You know when you're old, when the best part of your day happens, when the alarm goes off. You know when you're old, when you're 17 around the neck, 44 around the waist, and 120 on the golf course. You know you're old. (laughs) And yet some of the most significant achievements in human history have been performed by those who are old. Noah Webster was 70 years old when he wrote his dictionary. Socrates was over 75 years old when some of his greatest work was done. George Bernard Shaw wrote some of his most famous plays after he was 80. Then there's John Wesley. For 40 years, he traveled more than 50 miles a day on horseback. He preached over 40,000 sermons, he produced over 400 books, he spoke 10 languages fluently, and yet at age 83 he complained that he couldn't write more than 15 hours a day without his eyes hurting. At 85 he was ashamed that he couldn't preach more than twice a day. And at 86, he wrote in his diary, I feel ashamed that I have a tendency to stay in bed past 5.30 a.m. Now think of Jacob. When he comes down to Egypt, he's 130 years old. He sees that his son Joseph, who has been said to be dead for over 20 years, is very much alive. And when he sees him, he says this, now I'm ready to die, for I have seen for myself that you are still alive. And yet he has 17 more years to live. And it's during these 17 years that he accomplishes what the Bible calls his most significant feat. And that's saying something, because this man has had three visions, God has appeared to him in a theophany twice. He has been a wonderful man of the fields. He has abundant children. And yet the Bible says it isn't until the last year of his life that he does his most important work in his entire life. Listen to how the Hebrews, a writer of Hebrews puts it. Henry read it earlier. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. I mean, think of it. Of all of the things the writer of Hebrews could have mentioned about Jacob, all the things he could have pointed to, he points to this one event when he's on his deathbed, when he pronounces his blessings on two of his grandsons, And then he worships. And the Bible says that's the greatest act of faith he ever exhibits. So why is this blessing so important? And what is it about his worship that makes him a hero of faith? Those are two great questions. I'm glad you asked. Let's dig and see the answers. First of all, notice the blessing. Look at verse 5. Jacob says to Joseph, and now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are. Now those who read the Bible closely will discover that the sons of Israel are not twelve, they're thirteen. Jacob's 11th son, Joseph, his name means, I will add, God adds. He adds two to the tribe of Israel. So instead of 12, there are 13. Ephraim and Manasseh are added. And of these 13, the Bible says, 12 of these sons inherit the promised land, and one of them, Levi, inherits the Lord. You know where all of this is transacted? right here on the deathbed of Jacob. The Bible says in the final days of his life, he rallies his strength enough to sit up in bed, and he says to his son Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh are mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are. Now some translators add the word reckoned there. They translate it this way, Ephraim and Manasseh will be reckoned as mine. That's the same word Paul uses in Romans chapter 4 when he declares that no one is good, no, not one. There is nothing acceptable in any of us to God. We are under the condemnation of God's judgment. Paul writes it this way. When a man works, his wages are not reckoned to him as a gift or an obligation. However, to a man who does not work but who trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. And then he gives an example. He says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham was a fully devout sinner. And yet God declared him, while at the same time a sinner, he declared him a saint. And what Paul is saying here in Romans 4 is, that's exactly what happened to every Christian. If you're a Christian here this morning, it's not because you're good. I know you. (laughs) It's not because you earned it. I know you. It's not because of anything you've done. I know you and I know me. The reason we're Christians, the reason we're found in Christ is because God declared he reckoned you and me his sons as a result of the work of his son god reckoned you as a christian through the works of another and that's exactly what jacob is doing here on his deathbed what he's saying to these two sons of joseph is you are mine through the works of your father joseph I can't tell you the number of people I've met over my life who want to credit themselves for their standing with God. They'll say it in different ways. Some will say, I've tried to be good. Others will say, I've tried to live a faithful life. Others will say, I hope the Lord says to me one day, good and faithful servant. Others say, Jesus did his work, but I must do my work. After all, Paul said, you must work out your faith, your salvation with fear and trembling. Have you ever heard that kind of drivel? Have you ever said that kind of drivel? That's what Paul mentions in Philippians 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but he's not talking about our justification. He's talking about our sanctification. He's not talking about our standing with God, our regeneration. He's talking about now how we're to live. And every time he uses that expression, four times in the New Testament, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's talking about one thing, and that's humility. He's talking about living out the righteousness that God has declared to you. In other words, when God sees you, he doesn't see your works, your intrinsic righteousness, because you don't have any. He sees the righteousness of his Son. And that's exactly what Jacob is seeing in these two boys. He's seeing the righteousness of Joseph. You say, but why is this adoption of Joseph's two sons the high watermark of Jacob's life? Because it's a mirror image of what God does when he saves anyone. These two boys are adopted. They're going to become tribes of Israel. They are made heirs to the promised land and all the promises of God, not by their work, but by the work of their father Joseph. Without Joseph, they'd never be before him. Without Joseph, they'd never stand to be blessed. They've done nothing to merit their adoption. They don't walk into their grandfather's deathbed room unaccompanied. They stand before Jacob because they've been brought by their father Joseph. And when they stand there, they will get from Jacob the exactly the same blessing that God gives their father Joseph through Jacob in fact they'll get the same blessing we get the same blessing as the one Joseph got and the same blessing as the one Jesus got and it's all because of the transforming power of God's love and grace Then, second notice his worship Look at verse 15, and when he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who's been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who redeemed me from all of evil, bless the boys. Now remember what he said 17 years earlier when he's standing before Pharaoh? He says, the days of the years of my life have been few and evil. And yet here, he says that the Lord has delivered him from all evil. It's the same word. Seventeen years earlier, he's overcome by the pains of all the evils that have faced him. But here, seventeen years later, he's overcome with all of the deliverance that God has provided to him in the face of his evil. I mean, that's a change. When Daniel Webster used to meet anyone on the street and he knew him but he couldn't call his name, he'd always say the same thing. How's that old problem you're dealing with? Nine times out of ten, the person would begin to unfold this old problem that they were talking about years ago and as they unfolded it, he'd remember their name. Lou Holtz, the great football coach, said, Remember when you're tempted to tell people all of your troubles, half of them aren't interested, and the other half are glad you're finally are getting what you deserve. <laughs> we never find out what Pharaoh thinks of Jacob's lament. All we know that is that he walks in, he whines, he blesses Pharaoh, and he walks out. But here on his deathbed, when Joseph walks in, he humbles himself. He blesses the Lord, and he worships him. His whining has given way to worship. And in this worship, we see three essential marks of what true and effective worship is. That brings us to the third point. Notice the gratitude. It all starts with gratitude. Look at verse 11. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see the face of your offspring also. Seventeen years earlier, when he's standing before Pharaoh, it's all about Jacob. It's all about the bad hand that God's dealt him. But here on his deathbed 17 years later, it's all about worshiping the Lord who's given him everything. Someone has said these words of Jacob are the closest to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 when he says that in Christ, God has done exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever ask or think. That's what Jacob is saying to Joseph. I never expected to see your face again. For 20 years I thought you were dead. And now God's not only let me see your face, He's let me see the face of these two sons of yours. You file that under gratitude. And that's the beginning of true worship. To remember the Lord and all that He's done for you. And to recognize how worthy He is to be praised and worshipped. Fourth, notice the testimony. Look at verse 15b. God who's been the shepherd, my shepherd, all my life long to this day. Now, some translate this the God who's fed me all my life until this day. Now, whether it's feeding or whether it's shepherding, the point's the same. Every day of my life, the Lord has attended to every one of my needs. I mean, think of the change. 17 years earlier, in the presence of Pharaoh, all he can do is focus on himself and the shortness of his life and all of the evil that's befallen him. But here, 17 years later, as he worships the Lord, as he gets his eyes off himself, all he can think about his life is how long it's been and how abundant and good. Instead of a series of evil recollections. He's overwhelmed by the memory of a God who's supplied every good gift to him. Before Pharaoh, it's all weariness. Before Joseph, it's all wonderment. In the presence of Joseph, it's all about the fact that God has shepherded him every day of his life. I mean, Think of this. A thousand years before David will say, the Lord is my shepherd. That's exactly what Jacob is saying. He understands that everything that he's received is from a good and gracious God. If you were here yesterday, you know that Brendan not only plays the guitar, he can carve pumpkins. And we got two of them, and, and I said, can we use these today? And, and I, I thought, this is perfect. This is, uh, this is old Jacob in the presence of Pharaoh everything's bad and he's sticking out his tongue <laughs> but here in the presence of joseph he's saying what went, what's going on everything's great so we got one guy here another guy here and yet it's the same guy that brings us to the fifth point notice the love the angel who has redeemed me from all of evil," verse 16. Now that word evil' is exactly the same one he uses before Pharaoh. In front of Pharaoh, when he talks about evil, it's a wine. It's that face. But in front of Joseph, the word "evil is a praise. God's delivered me in the midst of all of it, and it's that face. In front of Pharaoh, the word evil symbolizes the shortness and the finality of life. In front of Joseph, the word evil symbolizes the expansiveness of life and his love. I don't know if you've had the experience. I have it because of my profession. I'm with people who are dying all the time. I mean, you are too, but I mean, real quick, you know, they're... A couple of days, maybe hours. And it's amazing the contrast. You know, I I sometimes am with people and they're scared to death, and, you know, I can understand that. I mean, it's one thing not to have ever gone to Cleveland, it's another thing never to face death. I mean, what's going to go on? And their eyes are fixed on themselves. And one of the amazing acts of grace is when God allows that interaction and allows me to see. Those eyes begin to shift from themselves to the Lord. And then sometimes you go in and somebody's ready to die and they bless the socks off of you. Why? Because their eyes are on the Lord. Those are the people who say, you know, God's been so gracious. He's given me so much. I mean, look at all the years of my life. Look at all of the blessings. See, before Pharaoh, all he can do is think of himself. But before Joseph and his boys, all he can think about is God and the wonders of his blessing and all the future generations. So what's the takeaway in all of this? What would the writer of Hebrews have us see in that one sentence that he writes about Jacob? What are the bottom lines here, and how does it apply to us? Well, first of all, I think about probably the best book Tim Keller ever wrote, Meaning of Marriage, and in that book he talks about, most marriage books are lousy, but this was a good one, and he talks about some of the problems in marriage, and he identifies one. He said, you know, one of the biggest problems in my marriage to Kathy is she's been married to three different men, and they're all me. In other words, I'm not consistent. I can think of a number of different Tims that she's been married to. That's exactly what God's showing us here. At the end of his life, God is showing us that Jacob is two different men. There's the old Jacob who can only see himself. And then there's the new Israel Who has his eyes squarely fixed on God and His grace. And he's only concerned about others. I mean, this is a different man. He's humble. He says to Joseph, if I've found favor in your eyes. Now, that's not normal for a father to say to a son. But especially Jacob. Jacob. He's grateful. I never expected to see your face. He's insightful. God has been a shepherd to me all my life. He's peaceful. Let my name be carried on. What name? Not Jacob. Let the name Israel be carried on. Of all the achievements of his life, (coughs) there's only one that God points to as the greatest. And that's the day he blesses Joseph's sons and worships the Lord properly. So what about you? In all the twists and turns of your life, where are your eyes fixed? How do you see the evil in your own life? Does it prompt sadness? Or does it prompt gladness that while you can't change yourself, God can? These two beautiful women over here, stand up a second. Go ahead, right, right here. The two leopards, please stand up. Look at Who would wear that to church? It's only because I asked them to. The Bible says, can a leopard change his spots? The answer is no. But God can, and I know you well enough to know that the Lord is in the process of changing both of you, just as he's changing me, just as he's changing almost everybody here, maybe everybody. I was trying to, how could I work that in? There it is. <laughs> so when you look at your own life and you see all the twists and turns, all of the failings, all of the old you and the new you, And when you go to that default, which is, am I good enough? Do you think more of you? Or do you think more about Jesus? Because without him, we don't have a prayer. Do you know how I could tell whether you're in a state of sadness or a state of gladness? Do you know how you can tell whether that evil in your life is propelling you toward him or deeper into despair? Ask yourself this. How much gratitude is there in my heart? How much of a testimony is there on my lips? How much love is there in the depth of my soul for him and for others? You know, that's the great thing about age. You're never too old to fix your eyes on Jesus. After all, the great, some of the greatest feats in all of history have been performed by somebody who's old. It takes Jacob 147 years to accomplish the principal mission God had for him. Finally, he fixes his eyes on the Lord, and he worships him. You can do that at any age, but the question I would have for all of you, and for me, is why wait? Think about that. Amen.